Revelation 6, now verse 8. The Bible says, I looked and behold a, what? Pale horse. And his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. Here we find the fourth rider is a deadly rider on a pitiful pale horse. And friends, that color pale is the color of death and decay. Isn't that right? When a person is about to die, they turn pale. It's the color of sickness. It's the color of death. And the literal color pale is yellowish green. Friends, you know yellowish green? That's the color of sickly houseplants that don't get enough light. You have some of those plants in your house? Hopefully not, amen? In Hawaii, we have some green plants, amen, that are alive. But friends, if a plant does not get enough light and enough water, it turns pale. It looks like it's alive, but it's in the process of decay and death. When a person doesn't get out in the sun, what color do they turn? They turn pale. When there's no light, if you're in darkness, you turn pale. It's the color of sickness and death. And friends, this was a fit description of the church. During the dark ages, when there is no light, things get pale. And friends, what is the light that was nearly extinguished during the dark ages? It's the Bible, friends. Psalms 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But friends, the reason why the dark ages was dark is because the church made it illegal to read or own the Bible. Bibles were burnt by the thousands, friends. And if you were caught with a portion of scripture, you could be burnt as well. And so when you take away the light of God's word, what do you have? The dark ages. And friends, when there is no light, you turn pale. It's the color of decay and death. Because notice what God's word does. In John chapter 6 and verse 63, the Bible says, it is the spirit that quickens. That word quickens, it literally means makes alive. Friends, the word of God makes us alive. The flesh profits nothing. And the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are what? They are life. But friends, when you take away the word of life, what do you have? You have spiritual decay and death. It's pale, brothers and sisters. And it was during this time that the light of truth was almost extinguished completely. Death by famine and persecution against the word of God. This pale horse represents the time when the Christian faith was a dead and a dying faith. From white in apostolic purity to red bloodied in persecution to black darkened as compromise begins to settle in and then after that pale spiritual death. Notice how history describes the dark ages and the church of that time. History tells us that the new Christians were as far as thinking and habits went. Who were the new Christians? The pagan converts, those who converted to Christianity. And it says that these new Christians were as far as thinking, in other words, their beliefs, and habits, in other words, their lifestyle, they were the same old what? They were pagans. Their surge into the churches did not wipe out paganism, but on the contrary, hordes of baptized pagans meant that paganism had, what is that word? diluted the moral energies of organized Christianity to the point of what? Impotence. You see, friends, Christianity in the the dark ages, as pagans were brought into the church and just baptized without truly being converted, it diluted and paralyzed the Christian faith. They had a form of godliness. They had the name of Christ on their lips, but in their hearts, in their belief system, in their lifestyle, they were still the same old unconverted pagans. And to the point where Christianity was impotent. And friends, that word impotent means you can't reproduce. And when you can't reproduce, you end up dying. It's pale, friends. It's a sickly and dead faith. 
In fact, notice another historical reference describing the Dark Ages. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire. Remember, from pagan Rome, it became papal Rome. It was the established religion in the Roman Empire, and it took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed what? Baptized paganism. That's all what it was, friends. It was paganism with a Christian garment. It was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the true church during this time period were worshiping God underground. They were hiding in the wilderness. You see, friends, what the church did is what many churches are doing today. They were lowering the standards, compromising the truth in order to get more converts. And they were simply baptizing people that were not truly converted. Friends, we should never baptize anyone that has not experienced a conversion in their hearts. Because, friends, what is baptism? It's just an outward expression of an inward experience. The water does not change. It's the spirit that changes first. Can you say amen? Many churches are making that same mistake today. And friends, listen. Whenever the church lowers the standard to convert the world, the world is never converted. But rather, it's the church that is converted to the world. Did you catch that? When the church compromises and waters down the message of God because it's unpopular, because it cuts across the grain, because it's a call of repentance and reformation, whenever a church does this, the world is never converted to the church. The church is always converted to the world, and it paralyzes the church. And friends, the past is being repeated in Christianity today. What happened back then was this. The false religious system becomes head of the state, and now the church uses the military arm of the state to enforce its doctrines, its dogmas, and its decrees. In other words, they're using the power of the state to force the conscience of individuals And those who wanted to remain faithful to God and the Word of God, they were hunted down like wild animals, and they were put to death, not by the hands of pagans, but by the hands of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, this was the counterfeit church. And during this time period in the 1500s, there was a secret brand of the church that was created to destroy heretics. It was called the Jesuit Order. It was founded by Ignatius Loyola in the year 1540. This is the secret society of the Catholic Church. And this branch of Catholicism, the Jesuit order, was invented for the strict purpose of wiping out Protestantism, wiping out what they called heresy, and to corrupt and to crush those who wanted to remain faithful to the teachings of God's Word. In fact, I want you to notice with the book, a book called The Great Controversy, which is a book that traces church history, how it describes this new order of the Catholic Church. The Great Controversy, page 234, it says... Speak about the Jesuit priests. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted for the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. They wore a garb of sanctity, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about doing good. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were concealed. It was the fundamental principle of the order, the Jesuit order, that the end does what? Justifies the means. In other words, it doesn't matter how you do it, as long as it happens, the end justifies the means. And so by this code, lying, theft, perjury, assassination, were not only pardonable and forgivable, but commendable when it served the interests of the church. And so this is the secret society of the Catholic Church. The Jesuit order was was made. 
And the strict goal of the Jesuits is to infiltrate Protestantism and to corrupt it by lying and perjury or to destroy it by assassinations. And friends, today, the Jesuit priests would deny these intentions. But listen, friends, their own symbols do not lie, and it reveals the intentions. In fact, I visited the headquarters of the Jesuit church just last April. There in Rome, the Church of Jesus, the Jesuit church. And friends, in this church, there's this statue. I took this picture. A statue of a woman with some type of whip or something in her hand, and she is stamping upon two men. And friends, do you know who those two men are? They're Protestant reformers. And the church denies that this is what it means. But friends, if you notice the statue carefully, there's this little angel, which is more like a demon, that is ripping out pages of a book. And would you like to guess whose names are on the binding of the books right there in the statutes? The name of Martin Luther and the name of John Calvin and the name of Eurek Zwingli. Their own symbols do not lie, even though today they will deny that this is their intentions. Friends, it's alarming that the new pope is a Jesuit pope. And we're going to talk about that more on a future night. But friends, during this time period, the Jesuit order was set up to stamp out heresy. This is what the church did during the Dark Ages. And friends, history tells us that they died in cruel and torturous ways. Some of them were skinned alive. Can you imagine that? Filleted. Some of them had their tongues cut off because they would not stop preaching the gospel. Others were pulled apart by teams of horses, stomped upon by wild elephants. Others were sawn in half, and papal Rome followed the example of pagan Rome. They offered them an easy way of escape. They said to these Christian Protestant martyrs, if you just acknowledge the supremacy of the Pope, we will let you go free. If you just kiss the ring of the Pope, if you just offer some incense to our statue of the Virgin Mary, you can be free. But many of these Christians, friends, would rather die than disobey God because they have the hope of a resurrection, friends. And today, what about us? Many times we make excuses for not following God. We say to God, we say to others, but Lord, if I follow you, I might lose my job. I I might lose the respect of my friends. I might be misunderstood by my family. If I do the right thing, I might lose some of these things. Well, friends, what are we going to say to God when over 50 million Christians died in the dark ages? They would rather be burnt alive than disobey the word of God. Friends, what excuse are we going to make? Friends, think about the faith of the early Christian martyrs who gave everything, friends. They gave all And they did it willingly and happily. Why? Because they had the blessed hope of a resurrection. They did not consider their life important. They considered the truth of God and the honor and the glory of God above even their very own lives. That's what history tells us, friends. Over 50 million Christians. Oh, friends, we need to have the faith of the martyrs. Can you say amen? Amen. But friends, many people say, "I'm I'm ready to die for Jesus. People sometimes say like Peter, Lord, I'm ready to die for you, when they're not even living for him. Friends, before we can die for him, we first must start living for him. Can you say amen? So Lord, help us tonight. Can you say amen? You see, the pale horse time period, the time when the Christian faith was a dead faith, lasted from 538 to about 1798. This was during the time of the dark ages where Satan sought to extinguish the light of the truth. And friends, it seemed like the darkness was stronger than the light. It seemed like error was overcoming the truth. But here's the question. Would God's truth be trampled upon forever? Not at all, friends. Truth is always stronger than error. Light will always dispel the darkness. And God in his word has prophesied that the light of his truth 
would begin to penetrate the darkness of the dark ages. And friends, so far in this presentation, we've just been talking about the bad news. How many of you are now ready for the good news? Are you ready? We've seen how the church began at a high, pure, exalted state from white in apostolic purity, then red in bloody persecution, then black darkened as compromise settles in, and now pale, the color of death. We've saw it how it went down, 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 but now we're going to trace it how God begins to rise it and exalt it higher and higher and higher. Oh, friends, if you're ready for the good news, would you please say amen? Amen. We traced it from its pure to its pale state, now from pale back to its pure state. Friends, notice what the Bible tells us. The light of truth would penetrate the darkness. In Proverbs 4, verse 18, the Bible says, but the path of the just, stop right there. What does that mean, just? Bible says in Romans 1, 17, that the just shall live by So friends, this is the path of faith. Can you say amen? Those who are seeking to walk by faith and not by tradition and not by sight. And notice this path of the just, the path of faith is as the what? Shining light. But what kind of light? A light that shines how? More and more unto him. So the Bible tells us that the path of faith that was almost destroyed in the dark ages and replaced with darkness, God says that this path of faith, the path of the just, will begin to shine more and more, brighter and brighter, until the perfect day. In other words, God would restore the path of faith. He would restore the faith of Jesus. And as the second coming, as the perfect day approaches, God would restore all truth back to his church here in these last days. Oh, friends, how would God restore truth? Notice what it says in Jude chapter 1 and verse 3. The Bible says, exhorting you to contend, to do what? To contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The Bible tells us that we are to contend for the true faith. That word contend, it means to fight. It means to battle. It means to defend and to maintain, not physically, friends, but to fight by boldly proclaiming the truth and boldly protesting that which is not truth. And so how would God restore the path of faith? God would raise up different men and women who would stand up to defend the true, pure faith of Jesus. And by doing so, the light of God's word would be restored. But friends, how does God restore truth? Not all at once, but he does it gradually. He does it how? In other words, more and more and brighter and brighter. Notice what Jesus said in John 16, verse 12 and 13. Jesus said, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Friends, I'm so thankful that God does not, never overwhelms us. Can you say amen? Jesus said to the disciples, I have so much to say to you, but you can't handle it right now. Therefore, I'm not going to say it. You see, brothers and sisters, God knows what we can handle. And he promises in his word to never give us more than what we can handle. And friends, I know that perhaps for some of you who are hearing these messages for the first time, you have been tempted to be overwhelmed. But the fact that God allowed you to hear it shows that he has seen that now is your time and that you can handle it. Can you say amen? So God says, Jesus said, I have many things to say, but you can't handle it. You can't bear it now. How be it? When he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into not some truth, not most truth, but into all truth. And notice, he will guide us, not force us, not rush us, but guide us step by step. In other words, God does not reveal all truth at once because if he did, it would be overwhelming. Just like when you're in a dark room and you fall asleep and when your eyes are accustomed to darkness and someone comes in and turns on the light, how do you feel? How do you respond when all the light shines all at once? You start to shout, right? You start to resist. It becomes blinding. It becomes overwhelming. And so God would not restore everything all at once 
because people would turn away, but rather he would send the Holy Spirit and raising up different men and women to contend, defend, and earnestly stand up for the true faith, but not everything at once, just a little portion at a time, thus giving our eyes, our spiritual eyes, time to adjust to seeing the light. Can you say amen? And it would shine more and more, brighter and brighter, clearer and clearer unto the perfect day. And that day is the time of perfect clarity. It's the day when God's church is truly going to experience the reality of this promise where the Holy Spirit would lead them into all of the truth. Well, friends, will this time ever happen? Revelation tells us yes. In Revelation 14, verse 12, it talks about God's end time remnant people. His final generation, those who live at the end of time. And it says, here is the patience or endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith, what? Notice it doesn't say faith in Jesus. Friends, that's obvious. They do have faith in Jesus. But more than just faith in Jesus, they have the faith, what? Of Jesus. You see, friends, the same faith Jesus had, God's end time people are going to have as well. And tell me, friends, is the faith of Jesus complete or is it incomplete? It's a complete, pure faith. The Bible is telling us that God's end time people is going to have a perfect, complete, and a pure faith. The faith not just in Jesus, but the faith that Jesus had. In other words, they're going to believe exactly what Jesus taught. Can you say amen? And so how was the faith of Jesus fully restored? Friends, allow me to share with you the history of how God began to restore all truth from the darkness of the dark ages. Friends, are you ready for this? History tells us. That quietly and secretly at first, people during the dark ages began to read the Bible. And one of the most prevalent groups was the Bible-believing Waldensians. These were a group of individuals that held to the ancient faith of God's Word. They lived in the mountainous villages of northern Italy and southern France because this mountainous region provided refuge from papal persecutions. At the sound, at the approach of papal armies, the Bible-believing Waldensians would run to the caves where they, able, where they were able to find refuge and protection from papal persecution. And friends, I got the chance to visit these caves just last year. I went to this cave. Here's the opening of one of the caves. And in this cave, the Waldensians would worship God. Friends, you had to get on your hands and knees in order to get into it. But once you were in there, it was a large opening, a cavern. And friends, it looks like a church, doesn't it? The side walls are slanted. It goes to the top. There's light shining from the top. And there's a, there's a large flat area in the bottom. And just above it, behind it, is a platform, an elevated, uh, elevated platform where the preacher would preach from. And we went into these caves. And in those caves, we began to sing the songs. Of Jesus. Look at me, I'm standing there, I'm just loving it. It was a surreal experience. These were the places that those who kept to the ancient faith worshiped God, even in a time of gross darkness. And friends, some, uh, some uh, um, history also tells us that sometimes they would go to these caves and, and at one point there was a vast papal army that actually created a big fire at the mouth of the cave and caused the fire to go in the cave and killed thousands of Bible-believing Waldensians, women and children alike. And friends, you can imagine visiting places like this, how surreal it was. You see, right now we're living in a time of religious freedom. But friends, this freedom was a stranger to many people in the past. And that's the reason why we ought to be thankful for the freedom we have to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Can you say amen? And friends, it was in these mountainous regions that the Waldensians had a Bible college, a training school. This was the place that they had the training school. It was called the School of the Uncles. You see, they used to call each other uncle and auntie. And friends, I like that. How about you? 
the school of the uncles, the school of the barbs. And it was in this place, in the mountains, on these rock tables, in those exact tables, that the Waldensians would hand copy the Bible for months. And they would sew portions of the scriptures into their garments. And they were light bearers and soul winners. And then they would go into the cities and the universities. And then whenever they found someone that was interested in spiritual things, they would slip a portion of scripture to them. Friends, if they were caught, they would be burnt alive. But friends, they risked their lives to share the gospel of truth with their neighbors. And some of us are afraid to witness to our family and friends. They risked their lives, friends. They sold portions of scripture in their clothing. In fact, I went to the Waldensian Museum. And I took this picture. You know what that is? That's a ring, friends. That's a ring. And on the top part of the ring was a little compartment. And in that compartment was a small piece of paper, a portion of the scriptures. Folded up. You couldn't even read it with a naked eye. You had to have a magnifying glass to read it. But this is the great length they went to, to preserve the teachings of God's word and to share it with others. And soon as they began to share the light of truth, they began to grow and glow all over Europe, and so the path is beginning to be restored. God used the Bible-believing Waldensians, amongst others, to restore the long-forgotten truth that the Bible alone is the sole rule of authority. But friends, listen, the Waldensians didn't have all the truth. There are many things that they did not understand, and so God had to raise up another reformer by the name of John Huss. He was from Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic of today. He was a Catholic priest that began to denounce heresy in the church. And he said, my mind is chained to the Bible. Obedience to God is my model. And because of his faith in Jesus and the word of God, he was burnt alive at the stake. He was martyred in June 6 of 1415. And friends, I got the chance last year to stand on the very spot where that, where that martyr, John Huss, was burnt alive at the stake. And as I stood there upon that, that sacred spot, I tried to imagine what it must have been like to give my life for Jesus in death. Friends, you can imagine how surreal of an experience it was. God used John Huss to begin revival throughout the Slovakian region. And he used him and the Hussites to restore the long forgotten truth that we ought to obey God rather than man. But friends, listen, John Huss didn't have all the truth. God used him just to restore that part. But friends, there was a lot that he did not understand. So God had to raise up another reformer to contend for the faith. Now, Martin Luther, a German priest that lived in a little village called Wittenberg. And he, he performed penance, torturing his body, trying to pay for his own sins, trying to find peace. But penance could never give him the peace he longed for until one day Martin Luther began to read the word of God. And in reading the gospel of Christ, he found the great truth in Romans 1.16 that the just shall live by, not by works is man saved, but by faith and faith alone. And this wonderful discovery of the true way of salvation led Martin Luther to nail 95 points of protest upon the castle church wall, uh, castle church door there in Wittenberg, Germany. I got the chance to visit there. In this wall, Luther nailed the 95 theses of protest. And as a result of his protest against the heresies and corruptions of the church, he was forced to recant his words before the dignitaries there at Worms in Germany. But friends, during, in, uh, during that time period, in the face of the most powerful kingdom on earth, the papacy, I want you to notice what Martin Luther said. He was standing alone, but friends, God was standing with him. Martin Luther said, my conscience is taken captive by God's word. 
I cannot and will not recant anything. For to act against conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. Here I stand. I can do no other. God, help me. Friends, that was powerful. Amen. He took a bold stand. His life was on the line, but he did not consider his life something to be valued, but rather the truth was more important. And God used Martin Luther to begin the Lutheran movement. And it was the Lutheran movement that restored the long-forgotten truth that we're saved by grace and grace alone. And that part of the path was restored, and the light began to shine a little bit more. But Luther didn't have all the truth. There are still many things that he didn't understand. So God was of another reformer to contend for the faith. Now John Calvin from Geneva, Switzerland, which was the city of refuge, he set up a Bible college and a training school in Geneva, and Protestants from all over Europe would flock to this place to be trained um, to study the Bible so that they could go back to their countries and witness to the ancient faith and out of calvin's teachings was born the presbyterian movement and his major emphasis was the importance of christian growth that we need to grow up in the likeness of christ that day by day we ought to be growing up and maturing in our walk with the lord and so god used calvin and the presbyterian church to restore that long forgotten truth but friends there was a lot that calvin did not understand he didn't have all the truth so god had to raise up another reformer to contend for the faith now he rose up the anabaptist movement Individuals like John Smith and and Michael Sattler, amongst others, they were known as the radicals in this day and age because they taught in the truth of baptism by immersion, not by sprinkling infants. And they stood up for this. And as a result, they were persecuted in very cruel ways. I got the chance to visit uh, Zurich there in Switzerland. And it was in this river that the Anabaptists were drowned to death. Why? Because they believed in baptism by immersion. And out of their teachings, the Baptist church and movement was born. And God used the Anabaptists and the, and the Baptist movement to restore the long-forgotten truth of baptism by immersion. But friends, there were still many things that they didn't understand. So God had to raise up somebody else. Do you see, friends, God was giving each different movement a piece of the puzzle of truth. Not everything to one person, but scattered out. Why? So that our eyes might be able to adjust to seeing the light. And then the torch of truth was passed to two brothers in England, John and Charles Wesley who gave a message of holiness to arouse the world-loving churches of their day and age. They taught that we ought to live holy lives. They give a message of holiness, and out of their teachings, the Methodist church was born amongst other charismatic churches, and God used this movement to restore the long-forgotten truth of holiness. But friends, they didn't have all the truth. There were still a lot of other things that that was yet to be discovered. And so what we're seeing, friends, is that God is restoring old forgotten truths. And before Jesus would come, all truth would be restored. Can you say amen? And so now let's get to the punchline. Why are there so many different denominations? As we've looked at history, the answer is clear. The reason why there are so many different denominations and so many different movements is because people don't really want all the truth. They're satisfied with just a portion of the truth. But they don't allow Jesus and the Spirit to lead them into all truth. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. God will raise up one individual with a specific point of truth to restore, but not everything. People would hear the message, they would believe in that truth, a movement would start, a denomination would be born, but the people, the members, would only go as far as the leader went. And so if Luther didn't teach it, we're not going to accept it because we're Lutherans. And so God had to bypass that movement and raise up somebody else with another truth to restore. People would hear it, they would accept it, they would follow the teaching, a church denomination would be born, but the people would only go as far as the leaders went. And so if Calvin didn't teach it, we're not going to accept it because we're Presbyterians. And they got stuck in a rut. 
But then there was more. God had to raise up somebody else with another point of truth. And they would teach it. People accept the, 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 the doctrine. A church denomination would be born. But again, the followers would only go as far as the leader went. And so if Wesley didn't teach it, we're not going to accept it because we're Methodists and we're going to remain Methodists. But friends, if John Wesley would have heard that truth, he would have moved forward. Can you say amen? If Luther would have heard more truth, he would have moved forward. You see, the message is don't get stuck in a rut. This cycle repeated over and over and over again. And that's the reason why there are so many different denominations in the world. You see, our loyalty must be to Christ and the word, never to a man, a pastor, or a denomination. Can you say amen? In fact, I want to read you from John Robinson, who was the pastor of the Pilgrim Fathers. Those who fled Europe to come to the Americas to find religious freedom, John Robinson gave them a message just before they left to go to Europe. And I want you to notice what he said. It's advice that we need to take today in America, in all over the world, in fact. He said, listen, I charge you before God and his blessed angels. Follow me, the pastor says. Follow me no further than I follow Christ. Can you say amen? And if God shall reveal anything to you by another instrument of his... Be ready to receive it as ever you would have received it, any truth by my ministry. For I am confident that the Lord has more truth and light to break forth from his holy word. And I bewail the state and condition of the Reformed churches who have come to a full stop in religion. They will go no further than the instrument of their reformation. The Lutherans cannot be drawn beyond what Luther saw. The Calvinists, they stick to where Calvin left them. This is a misery much to be lamented. For though they were shining lights in their times, yet God did not reveal his whole will unto them. And if they were alive today, they would be as ready and willing to embrace further light as they had received. But take heed what you receive for truth. Examine it well and compare it and weigh it with other scriptures of truth before you receive it. Can you say amen? But friends, when when the pilgrim fathers came to the world, they didn't keep to that advice. They got stuck in a rut. And that's why there are so many different denominations in our world today. You see, God wants to lead us into all truth. Can you say amen? And then early in the 1800s, God rose up another reformer here in America. His name, William Miller. And he began to study Bible prophecy. He was a Baptist preacher at first. He began to study prophecy. And in prophecy, he found the long-forgotten truth of the imminent return of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. And at the same time, another man in South America by the name of Emmanuel Lacunza. Johann Bengel in Germany, Edward Irving in Scotland, and out of their teachings, the Adventist movement was born. And friends, the Adventist movement was not a church or a denomination. It was simply a group of people from many different churches, Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Catholics, that believed that Jesus was coming soon. Because friends, you know what an Adventist is? It's those who are waiting for the second coming of Christ. How many of you are waiting for the second coming of Christ? If so, let me hear you say amen. Amen. Well, friends, that makes you an Adventist, no matter what church you go to. And so, friends, many people ask me, who are you? What faith do you claim? Who do you represent? What's your doctrine? What do you believe? Who are you? Well, friends, let me just tell you right now very clearly who I am. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I am a Waldensian. Because like the Bible-believing Waldensians, I believe that the Bible alone should be the soul of authority. Do you believe that? Well, friends, that makes you a Waldensian tonight. But more than a Waldensian, I'm happy to tell you that I'm also a Hussite. Because like John Huss, I believe that I ought to obey God rather than man. Do you believe that? Or friends, that makes you a Hussite. But friends, I'm not just a Hussite. I'm also a Lutheran. I belong to the Lutheran movement tonight. Because like Martin Luther, I believe that the only way I'm going to be saved is by faith in the grace of God. If you believe that, you say amen. 
Oh, friends, that makes you a Lutheran. But friends, listen, don't stop there. There's more to it than just being a Lutheran. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I'm also a Presbyterian. Because like John Calvin, I believe that, that, that as Christians, we ought to grow up and mature day by day into the likeness of Christ. That's what Calvin taught. That's what the Presbyterians believe. And so if you believe that, you say amen. amen. Well, that makes you a Presbyterian. But friends, there's more to it than just being a Presbyterian. If you're just a Presbyterian, it's not enough. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I'm also a Baptist. I belong to the Baptist movement. Because like the Anabaptists, I believe that baptism by immersion is what the Bible teaches, not by sprinkling. If you believe that, you say amen. Well, that makes you a Baptist, but friends, there's a lot more to it than just, don't stop there. If you stop there, you've fallen short of the mark. I'm not just a Baptist. I'm a Methodist tonight. I believe like John and Charles Wesley that we ought to live holy lives because the Bible says, be holy even as I am holy. And if you believe that, you say amen. Amen. Well, friends, that makes you a Methodist, but friends, if you stop there, you've fallen short. Don't stop there. I'm happy to tell you I'm more than just a Methodist and a Baptist and a Presbyterian. I'm happy to tell you that I'm also a Pentecostal tonight. Because I believe, like the Pentecostals, that I need to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit every single day. If you believe that, you say amen. Amen. Well, friends, there's more to it than just being a Pentecostal. I'm not just a Waldensian, a Hussite, a Lutheran, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, a Methodist, and a Pentecostal. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I'm an Adventist because I believe that Jesus is coming again. If you believe that, you say amen. amen. You see, the point is this. Don't get stuck in a rut. Don't give your loyalty to a man or to a church or a movement. Your loyalty should only be to Jesus and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? We must allow God to lead us and guide us into all truth. And after this, what other truths were yet to be restored? The truth of God's seventh-day Sabbath, friends. Saturday the seventh day, not Sunday the first day of the week. So God rose up Andreas Fischer in Slovakia that found the truth. John James in England. Oswald Glade in Central Europe and Joseph Bates here in America. They studied the word of God and they found that the truth is that the Sabbath is on Saturday, the seventh day of the week, not Sunday, the first day of the week. And so that truth was restored. And before Jesus comes again, all truth is going to be restored to his end time people. The truth of God, about, about God's law and God's Sabbath. What other truths were yet to be restored? The truth about what happens when a person dies. The truth about biblical principles of healthful living. The truth about the sanctuary and the investigative judgment. And friends, God is raising up a final movement in these last days that has all the truth from every movement that have come before. And Revelation teaches that this movement is the church. That God is calling all of his sheep to join. The gentle shepherd, the true pastor Jesus, is looking upon the Christian world that is fragmented and divided. And the Christian churches that have parts of the truth. And he's wanting to bring them into the one fold that has indeed not just some of it, but the whole thing. The shepherd is calling. And what does God's end time movement, what does this final movement look like? They're described in Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. They not only have faith, they not only have works, but they have a faith that works by love. They have the same pure faith of Jesus. They obey Jesus. They believe Jesus. They've allowed the spirit of Jesus to lead them into all truth, and they have a complete, pure, and restored faith. And friends, how many want to know who this movement is? Do you want to know who this movement is? If you want to know who this movement is, let me hear you say amen. Amen. Are you sure you want to know? Well, friends, you're going to have to come tomorrow night then. Because tomorrow night, 5 and 7 o'clock, we're going to look at the fingerprints of God's final prophetic movement in the last days. 
a movement that has all the truth, that grabbed it from every different movement and denomination that came before. And friends, why is God bringing us all together? To proclaim a restored truth to the entire world. A message that will prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. And friends, I want to be ready. How about you? But I don't want to be ready by myself. I want God to use me to help the world to be ready. Friends, this message must be taken to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is a worldwide movement of restored truth. And friends, do you realize that in these last days, we have the accumulated knowledge of every generation of the past. Truth has never been clearer than it is today. We are walking in the footsteps of spiritual giants that came before us. And did you know that many of the patriots and prophets saw our day in vision and they wanted to live right here? Because this is the, this is the time to live, friends. Many of the patriots and prophets and apostles and, and Protestants and pioneers of the past, they wanted to live right here because this is the most exciting period of, of the world's history. We have the truth, friends, of every generation in the past. I like to say it like this. I told you this before. Those who came before us, they played in the seasonal games. But friends, we are in the Super Bowl. We're in the climax. And in this most solemn time, God is not calling us to sacrifice and compromise and water down the truth for the sake of peace and unity. But He's calling us to boldly blow the trumpet of truth that people might arouse from spiritual slumber and Christian complacency that they might wake up and, and get shaken up so that they might be saved in God's eternal kingdom. Can you say amen? God is going to do the greatest work in the weakest generation. We are a fulfillment of the last prophecy and God is calling us to stand up and be counted. And Friends, we don't have the strength we don't have the power, but the Bible tells us, with God, all things are possible. The Bible tells us, if God is for us, who can be against us? Even if the whole world is against you, your family, your friends, your employers, if you got God at your back, you're on the winning team. Can you say amen? Friends, did you notice that for every truth, there's a counterfeit? On every single issue in the Bible. Notice it with me on the screen. On the issue of origins, where we came from, the truth is that we are created by God. He is our maker and our creator. The counterfeit teaching is evolution. And friends, many churches are believing in evolution today rather than what the Bible teaches. That's the counterfeit, friends. On the issue of authority, God's word is the authority. That's the truth. The counterfeit is that we can do our own thing. We can go by our own opinions. That's the counterfeit. And that's exactly what the Christian world is doing. On the issue of salvation, the truth is that we're saved by grace and grace alone. But Satan causes church members to think that their human works can cover for salvation. That as long as their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, as long as they go to a church, as long as they're morally upright and a good citizen, they can be saved by their own works. It's a counterfeit, friends. It is a deception. We're saved only by grace. That's the truth. On the issue of obedience, Satan has caused the Christian world to, be, to believe in a tradition of man, but God's law is what we ought to obey. On the issue of intercession, 
Satan calls his people to believe that we can confess our sins to a man, to a human priest, that we can just believe what the pastor says. Friends, the Bible tells us that Christ is the one mediator between God and man, and him only shall we pray and confess our sins to. Can you say amen? On the issue of worship, the devil has caused people to believe that, that Sunday is the day of worship, the Sabbath. But friends, the truth is that Saturday, the seventh day of the week, is the Sabbath of the Lord our God. It's a sign that he created us, that he redeemed us, and that we're saved by his grace alone. On the issue of Israel, the topic of Israel, Satan has caused almost the entire Christian world to look to illiteral, literal Israel in the Middle East as the fulfillment of prophecy. But the Bible is clear that spiritual Israel is the Israel of the last days. On the issue of the second coming, the devil has caused almost the entire Christian world to believe in a secret rapture theory. But the truth is that Jesus comes and every eye will see him. Every ear will hear. It's going to be a visible audible, literal, personal, and glorious event. That's the truth, friends. Jesus is coming again on the issue of what happens when a person dies. The devil has caused almost the entire Christian world to believe in the doctrine of the immortal soul that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. But the Bible tells us we go to the grave and we sleep until the resurrection. That's the truth. On the issue of baptism, Satan calls people to think that they can sprinkle babies. But the truth is baptism by immersion is what the Bible teaches. On the issue of health, the devil causes people to believe that you can eat whatever you want to eat. The health laws have been done away with, but the Bible teaches that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are to honor God by caring for His holy temple. Friends, did you notice on every single truth, every single issue, there is a genuine and there's a counterfeit. And majority of the Christian world, what column do they believe in? They believe in the counterfeits. But how many of you are thankful for the truth? The Bible tells us you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But not just knowing it in your mind, but walking in the truth in your life. And so as we close tonight, how many of you want to say, Lord, thank you for truth truth is too clear for us to be confused friends how many of you are going to stand on the side of truth in the last days how many of you are going to say lord jesus i want to be a part of the final movement to restore all truth lord help me to stand to the end is that your prayer if you want to stand on the side of truth why don't you take a stand right now as we close in prayer tonight let us stand for truth friends Let's believe it. Let's embrace it. Let's follow it. Let's proclaim it to the whole world. And friends, we stand not because we're strong. We stand because we're weak and we need His strength. And so let us pray as we close tonight. Father, thank you for truth. Thank you so much for leading us by your Spirit into truth. Lord, tonight, we surrender to the truth. We ask that the truth of your word, the truth of your salvation, would make us free. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us out of the darkness and into the light. And Lord, we've seen tonight through Bible prophecy that you're raising up a final prophetic movement of destiny to stand up and restore all the truth in the last days. Father, we want to be a part of that movement. So we stand, Lord, asking for your strength, asking for your grace. We don't have the power, Lord. We don't have the courage. And Lord, 
to be honest, many times we're afraid. But we ask that your truth, your love would cast out fear from our hearts. Help us to stand no matter what the consequences are. No matter what happens as a result, help us to stand for you because you have stood for us. Bless us now as we leave this place. Bring us back tomorrow as we learn part two and part three of this message. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's people say, Amen.